Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 181 of Yoga Land. Today, you get triple guests. Jason joins me today, and the two of us together interviewed Adam Hoke and Adam Hustler. So Jason is doing a 200-hour training in London in August. If you want details, you can go to our website, jasonyoga.com, and click on 200-hour training to get the details. But in the meantime, I thought it would be fun to learn more about Adam and Adam because they are co-teaching with Jason, and he does not often co-teach. He likes to go solo. So I personally wanted to know more about these two. I've met them several times, but never had a chance to have such an up-close and personal conversation, and it was a lot of fun. If you are interested in the 200-hour training, I wanted to let you know that we created a little video for you. It's like a little snippet from the training where Jason took one of the sequences from his manual that he uses in the training and kind of walks you through the concept of it. So if you would like that video, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash 200 hour. So the number 200 hour, and just give us your email address and we'll send you the video and you can get a sense, a little bit more of a sense of Jason's approach to this training in addition to this fabulous interview. And I want to just say before we start the interview that for anyone interested in a 200-hour training, or if you are teaching a 200-hour training, I think there's a lot of valuable insight that all three of them offer. And I want to add my little bit of insight. At the end of the interview, I ask, how do you know if you're ready for a 200-hour training? And they all have various kind of answers. So I'm going to offer mine because it's my show and I can do that. When I did my 200-hour training many years ago, I had a vague idea that I wanted to teach. I was mainly just sort of searching and seeking and wanting to, I wanted yoga to be a more embedded, natural part of my life. So I really wanted to explore. And I left that program. And as you can see, more than a decade later, I do not teach yoga, but it allowed me to work in the field of yoga and feel well-informed and experientially informed in the way that I wanted to over the years so that I could feel confident in what I do. So I just wanted to offer that, that it can be such a great complement to so many different types of professions, and you don't have to absolutely know 100% that you want to teach. In fact, most people feel like they do their 200-hour and then they want a little more training if they really want to teach. So one step at a time, okay? Okay. Enjoy the interview. All right, guys. Well, it's so great to be here with you. I can't wait to be all together in London this summer. And I, I mean that with full enthusiasm. Yeah. We um, love London so I'm much. I'm super excited about it. <laughs> we'll little, I'm usually we'll there alone. Sorry, what did you say? I was going to give you a nice little tour of the London highlights, but you've been before many times. We have, but Sophia hasn't been for several years and she's super excited and hasn't, like, you know, ha- doesn't remember anything. Well, we're going to be really excited to show you around and enjoy our lovely town. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to just get to know you guys a little better. I've known you as Jason's students and assistants for a long time, but I don't really know your stories. So Adam Hoke, let's start with you. I would just love to know either, I'm going to give you a choice here, multiple choice, either how you 
found yoga or why you decided to teach, like how you came to start teaching yoga, or you could answer both. I think both. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm from Florida, even though I live in London, I am from Florida, but don't hold that against me. A man from Florida. I, Do you watch I, The Good Place? <laughs> I am a Florida man. I have not done anything crazy in a Walmart. So just <laughs> as far as we know. But I left Florida when I was 17, 18 to go to New York for New York University. And I really enjoyed going to New York and rejecting suburbia. And I just looked for anything that was bohemian or different And someone invited me to a yoga class. So I was just all on board. So I showed up for this yoga class in the gym at NYU. And of course, it's at the gym. So there are weights and there is loud music coming from next door. And I didn't know what to expect. What happened was I totally loved it and got completely addicted. And for me, it was important because I grew up and I not really embodied, Mm. not Uh, a sports kid, no matter how hard my dad tried. Um, Like (laughs) T-ball was really traumatic for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, kickball for me. I get it. Yeah, let's not talk about kickball. I don't think we have enough time. (laughs) Can I ask what what T-ball is? T-ball is like kiddie baseball. So you're not old enough to actually hit the ball. So they just put it on a stand. (laughs) It's really good for self-esteem. There's no pitching. Yeah. Imagine like cricket and no one's like, pitching the ball at you it's just like on a tee and you have to hit it anyway yeah it's it's not worth talking about (laughs) but i did not like sports high school athletics high school pe class was really traumatic for me lots of bullying and negativity and i'm still working it out yep but going to the yoga room was like wow like rules are different here and no one was going to make fun of me if i didn't do it well And really, it wasn't about achieving. It was about me just sorting out my own stuff, which I had plenty of. And then I I was just, I cooked. And then I carried on for about 10 years or so without any thought of being a teacher, which in retrospect, I think was good for me because I had lots of ups and downs with it, broke up with yoga several times, Hmm. had fights, came back. And then I sort of knew what it was for me. And I found myself talking about it all the time with people, getting sort of evangelical about it, but realized I didn't know what I was talking about. So did you live in New York for those 10 years? I did, yes. Where did you practice? I Well, I started at the gym, then I started with Cindy Lee at Om Yoga. Oh, yay. Which I'm really glad you asked her about girls just want to have fun. (laughs) Right? Because she always mentions it, but... Nobody knows the behind the scenes of that story. Because that was really like, why did I, why did Adam Hoke go to Om Yoga? Because he saw in Cindy Lee's bio that she worked with Cindy Lauper. That was <laughs> that what got me there. So I, te- I practiced at Om and I practiced with just some great instructors at the gym. Mm-hmm. And, you know, New York Sports Club then had fantastic instructors. One of them oh, yeah. has like gone on to write a book with Deepak Chopra. So yep. I, I did well at the gym. But then eventually I moved. I met my husband and moved to London and there was lots of lots of shifts in my life, and I decided to go for a training. So I put, I put my money where my mouth was and uh-huh. actually learn the techniques properly from start to finish and, and be able to, if I wanted to give this to other people, do it well. That began my teaching journey. 
So I want to back up because I'm just nosy like this. I, I like to get the full spectrum. <laughs> so what did you major in at NYU? Oh, well, I majored in playwriting and acting. Oh, I love you so yeah. much. How do we not know each other better? <laughs> oh, my gosh. We have like parallel lives. I will talk to you offline about my ninth grade gym experience where they made us play ultimate frisbee. I, my heart is beating and I'm sweating. Can you thinking imagine about that. me playing ultimate frisbee? No. It's, it's bad. Yeah. The, the week we had to do American football in my high school class, I, I, I feigned some sort of desperate illness <laughs> <laughs> and did not go. I got a note to get out of gym class for 11th and 12th grade because I was doing ballet every day. So I just was like, nope, I'm covered. And yeah. I just stopped going. I mean, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a theater background. So, wow. Okay. I think that helps a lot in being able to get up in front of a group of people and teach yoga. It helps me understand why when you're assisting me, you break into song and dance all the time. Of course. You know, I yeah. try to brighten it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anytime I get heavy, it's just a Broadway tune. Oh, I love it. He doesn't actually do I that. know, I know, but we can just imagine. He, <laughs> he pulls out his cane and his top hat. So Adam, when you were in London at Tri-Yoga... And you yeah. decided that you wanted to do the teacher training program. Was it more of a personal decision for you because you wanted to enhance your own practice? Or was it that you thought that that was a vocational path that you wanted to uncover or a bit of both? It was a little bit of both. I mean, I'm in factor in like job unhappiness and going slightly cuckoo because I've changed countries and, you know, left all my friends and, and was sort of like in that seeking part of my life that I needed a change and something different. So it was all a big stew of that. And eventually I, I sort of had to sort through all of that to turn it into a proper vocation career path. And you teach most of your classes are at Tri-Yoga, yes? Yes, I teach at okay. Tri-Yoga and I teach at uh, Yoga on the Lane and I uh, teach online. Okay. okay, nice. great. Yeah. Nice. I was telling this when we were in London and we are, the three of us were, were talking to that group of students. I have this really distinct memory of you being right in the middle of the class, that first three-day training that I did at Tri-Yoga. Yeah. So how long after you completed your 200-hour program did we meet in that environment? Actually, I remember meeting you. We kind of chatted for a few minutes. It's just coming back to me. We chatted for a few minutes in the restroom and you had an American accent. So I was like, oh, like we said hi to each other and you had an American accent. So we kind of chatted each other up. Mm -hmm. When was that relative to the graduation, uh, your 200-hour graduation? So I graduated my first 200-hour in like December 2011. And I think you came April or so, March, April, 2012. Okay. I had met you years, like maybe we hadn't connected, but I was coming to your workshops for the past couple years before that. Oh, at the Soho studio. Yes. You just didn't okay. see me clearly. Got it. I, I wasn't important enough. <laughs> no, those were big, but that first training was small. And yeah. Jason is also legally blind. So he oh my God. See most people. I, this is like a whole new thing. Man. I can't see anything. It's crazy. Anyway. I think. 
I was talking to Sophia the other morning, the light, you know, it was, she came into our bedroom. It was a little dark, but there was some light coming in from the hallway and I'm talking to her and he's half asleep and he wakes up and he looks down at the end of the bed where I'm talking to her and he's like, are you talking to me? He didn't even even see our daughter at the end of the bed. Anyway. Okay. So let's circle back to some of the training experience, but I want to circle into Mr. Adam Hustler. So same questions to you, Adam. Number one, what kind of got you into the fold of practicing yoga? What's your story there? And then what was it that flipped the switch and you decided that you wanted to train? And when you started training, was it to mostly deepen your practice or was it something that you wanted to look into as a career? Cool. Okay. So this, what I'm doing now was never the plan. I was supposed to be a lawyer. And uh, my first encounter with yoga was at law school. And I think there was some student welfare thing going on. And they had various events like maybe head massaging and journal making. And yoga was one of them. And I think an ex dragged me upstairs to it. And I was kind of indifferent to it. It was it was nice. It was okay. I could see the benefit of it. But it wasn't going to get in the way of my boxing or get in the way of my, my drinking so I maybe did it once or twice over those few years, uh, or more than once or twice, maybe 10 times in those few years at university. And then post-uni, I ended up back in my hometown of Birmingham, a little bit lost. By this point, I was not going to be a lawyer. I'd ended up deciding on a career in kind of non-profit management, so particularly working with young people. I did a lot of that on the side at university kind of avoided my degree and instead went to young offenders institutions and schools working with disenfranchised teenagers so moved to birmingham a little bit lost had all the woes of a kind of 21 year old i'd split it with a girlfriend didn't know where i was going in life etc and i was surrounded mainly by people in my boxing club that wanted to hit me and we had very like socially not a lot in common you know there were people there with gun tattoos on their hips there was, there was not a lot of di- and i had long hair there was not a lot of dialogue although i enjoyed the boxing and i thought you know i need to get to know people in this city um, where can i interrupt you for a sec where when did you start boxing so a martial art started for me about seven or eight years old when i got to university i didn't really like the martial arts club uh, it wasn't particularly athletic and i met the boxing team and they were quite athletic my mom completely vetoed it because mm-hmm. my dad's family were boxers. Kind of the, oh. the grand, granddad was a bare knuckle boxer down on the canals in Birmingham. A very Peaky Blinders-esque <laughs> in a sense. But yeah, I decided nonetheless to go ahead with it. I kind of ignored my mom. And it became a big part of my life for many years. And if I, you know, if I still had time, I think I'd still be doing it. You were a little bit in the amateur circuit, right? Because I think... You know, a lot of people nowadays think about boxing, but because boxing has also become a little bit of a fitness trend, yeah. you know what I mean? Which isn't really boxing, it's swinging your arms. And there's no pugilistic element. You're not actually in combat with someone. So when you were boxing, did you have amateur, matched amateur fights? Yeah, yeah. Big, big men were hitting me in the face quite a lot. Yeah. No, so so your mom. The club that I ended up training in when I moved back to Birmingham was actually a professional club. So lots of pro fighters. And I knew that I couldn't be as good as them, of course. But my psyche was well, I can't be as good as them, but I can be fitter than them. 
I was still working, but I would go to that club twice a day, push myself and push them hard. And of course, I would get beaten up every day, but I could just work hard. And I enjoyed that so much. I had a few fights there. When I moved to London, eventually ended up just doing white collar fights, which is really not the safer thing for anyone involved because you end up going in the ring with who knows. There's no records, there's no map proper mm, thing. Okay. But that's that's another story. But yeah, so boxing was a really big part of my life. But let's say at the age of 21, I was surrounded by people I work with or people that were punching me and I needed something else. And my two choices were dance. I don't know what that would have manifested as, but dance classes in some form or doing more yoga again. And yoga won. I signed up for a hot yoga studio. Uh, Okay. And of course it was... I was trying to win at that as well. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> and and there was, I think there was a prima ballerina next to me who's now a yoga teacher, but she was next to me in class and I would just constantly be trying to beat her and <laughs> like behind my head, etc. Uh, she had no idea, of course, that there was a, a serious competition happening in class. Did she know that you won? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I could message her now. Like she's in the yoga world now. <laughs> maybe maybe I'd drop, <laughs> drop her a line. But for a good while, it was very competitive. But as I mentioned, there was a few other stresses in my life at that time. And what I think I got most from yoga, beyond the fact it was helping my boxing, actually, and helping my recovery, was that it just put me in a very nice mental space. I used to go to the yoga class half an hour early and just lie on my mat, meditate, think. You know, I didn't really call it meditating then, but just lying on my mat, being with myself. I think at the Mm -hmm. time, I was reading a lot of Stoic philosophy, Mm -hmm. which kind of overlaps, of course, very greatly with buddhism and that was a a really big influence on me so the yoga mat was a really important place for me for those few years in birmingham i'm so curious it's just just such an interesting leap to go from boxing to yoga and a lot of my listeners are women so probably a lot of other women are like me i know very little about boxing what was it like to go from physically hitting people to go to going into a yoga room where it's like ahimsa and and also how do you like were you still boxing as you started doing yoga more seriously and how did you sort of like balance those two different disciplines in your head so i think boxing and yoga for me went side to side fairly intensively for at least five years and i was still regularly training once or twice a day and often i would run to yoga then run to the boxing gym and then get home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. For me, it's always been a kind of a a practice of self-inquiry in every Mm -hmm. sense. And actually, when I was boxing, I learned so much about myself. And the same with the running that I've done and running ultra marathons. Just being with yourself and just watching the emotions come up. Like when you're in the ring with someone, as a crowd, and this person wants to take your head off, they want to knock you out. And how you process that, and how you realize actually it's still a sport, it's a competition, and it's it's just it's very interesting. And actually, you discover something very deeply about yourself, both in yoga and and boxing for me. And I think both of them are in in a sense practices of self inquiry. Just one involves a little bit more damage uh, <laughs> yoga <laughs> but, sim- but, but similar in many ways and for me there was never much of an issue and if anything they complemented each other uh, certainly physically certainly the yoga practice helped me engage more of my body when i threw an uppercut but equally helped me recover faster mm-hmm. and mentally i think they were they were a perfect complement Yeah, I want to chime in real quick. I think sometimes in the yoga world, we think that 
that yoga has kind of the the singular ownership of the relationship between physicality, self-awareness, and embodiment. Mm. You know, we kind of think like, oh, it's in the yoga room that we pay attention to what's happening in our body and our mind and our breath and our inner stressors. But for me, that has always come up in every physical discipline I've ever done. And each different physical discipline is just has a different set of demands and stressors that trigger a response. And I get to pay attention to what's happening in my body and in my mind in every different physical environment that I'm in. It's not, it really isn't just the yoga room. The yoga room just provides, I think- well, it's the, more overt. I mean, I was, it's I, that's more exactly overt. what like, I was about yeah. to say. And because in the yoga room, in some ways you have a little bit more of the time and the space to be pensive or to be reflective of what's happening. Well, and you're instructed to. I mean, exactly. I, I have to say, like, it's just part to of play devil's advocate for a moment, like, for like growing up dancing the way that I did and with the teachers that I had at that time, everything was about overriding your sensations. Sure. So, sure. <laughs> so I mean, I think it's a very advanced level of, of connection to be able to do that. And it's also maybe when you're getting to be like more of a young adult versus when you're younger, you yeah. might have that ability, but I think yoga is uniquely situated in, in many ways to help us understand our mind body connection. The only thing I'm saying is that it's not the only environment where we have that opportunity to use our body and to learn about the different dimensions of who we are while it's happening. That's yeah, all. Yeah. I think, all. I think, as you said, with yoga, there is a, this intention. There is an intention yes. to find out about yourself. When I, I did a hundred kilo, kilometer ultra marathon, the intention wasn't to discover about anything about myself, but in those 12 hours of running, it was, it was a microcosm of life, much like you might have on a mat. At times, I was thinking, why the hell am I doing this? Time, <laughs> I, was thinking, I could jump on a bus at any point and just go home. Uh, <laughs> there was a futility, but equally there was a, wow, I'm doing this. What, what a man I am. How impressive this is. And you just go through this journey. And that, yeah. that I think, whatever situation it is, whether it be yoga, boxing, whether it be running, all of these things prepare you to deal with the everyday life so well. Yeah. That is for me the main benefit. So how, Adam, did you then make that transition into teaching or into doing a teacher training? And, and speaking of intention, did you feel right off the bat that your intention was to learn more about yoga and to become immersed in the community or to use this as a livelihood trajectory and then finally what was your early training so my intention was never ever to be a yoga teacher at the point in which i did my training it wasn't a cool thing to do instagram wasn't a big thing there wasn't this glorification of of yoga career i did it solely because i've been doing yoga for a while and i wanted to learn more about the background of what i was doing and enhance my practice mm -hmm. i was doing a job where i had some space to go and do an intensive yoga training and i had some funds to do it and it was a case of if not now, when? And I thought, well, why not? Let's just let's just do it. And but it was solely to learn about the practice. There was a part of me at that point. I was managing two buildings, partly dedicated to young people. And through my kind of relatively senior role, I was having less contact with young people. And I thought, well, perhaps if I do the training 
I can then end up teaching some of the young people. That can be my way to reconnect, maybe teaching these young people some yoga. That never happened, (laughs) by the way, but that Mm. was a a minor intention. So I did did the training. It was an intensive one, a three-week training in Morocco, followed by a few weekends in London. And it was with the hot yoga studio that I was attending and had been attending in Birmingham and London. It wasn't a hot yoga training per se. It was a vinyasa-based training and it was wonderful it was it, it was certainly nice and that as part of that training part of homework we had to teach our friends some classes but because i had access to this these two remarkable spaces with many many rooms i started to teach friends pretty constantly i was inviting people on facebook whoever to come along people that i hadn't seen for years and there would be some saturdays this is before i was a qualified teacher where just to get the reps in I was teaching five back-to-back classes, completely unpaid for maybe one or two people at a time. So probably before I'd actually qualified, I might have taught 100, 200 classes, two very small classes, but 100 classes. And I realized that I enjoyed it, which I had no idea that I would, but I really, I enjoyed the practice of teaching. And I seemed kind of competent. Uh, (laughs) I seemed to be okay. I seemed to be okay at it. You fooled everyone well enough. Yeah, God, yeah. And then... And then soon enough, as, as I qualified, that studio offered me some classes and it built up from there. And then eventually at one point I was still working my job and teaching 10 or 11 classes a week as well. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You've never shied away from long days of hard work. Yeah. No. And that's still th- today still. Mm-hmm. I have one more question before we kind of get into the the next segment, which is I know that after this period that you're speaking about, you did my 300-hour training, and then we've worked together more or less since then. But I also know that one of the people that has given you insight and inspired who passed away last year, Michael Stone. Mm. So I'm wondering how you ended up in Michael's orbit. I, I know he had, I don't know how long you were with him or in what context, but I know that he had a significant impact on you. Yeah. So when I found out about Michael, I resonated with some of his Dharma talks that he had released. I didn't know a huge amount about him, but I knew I wanted to understand more about meditation. And I did, you know, I meditated relatively regularly, uh, but I wanted to know more. And he was in London. I thought, okay, I kind of resonate with him. He actually reminded me a lot uh, of you, uh, in, in a sense. He was kind of, for me, I used to say it's like Jason, but in the meditation world. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, relatively non-dogmatic. There was an intellectual rigor in how he taught. He was, a, he was certainly like an intellectual and there was no dogma attached to how he taught. You know, he, he, he was a monk. He then grew his hair. He derobed. And I'm not sure we got on necessarily. We didn't argue, but I think personality wise, we clashed. We, did, we didn't talk much, etc. Mm. But nonetheless, what he was saying, I respected so much and loved so much. And he had a real, real impact on my teaching and my life in a mm. sense. And uh, yeah. when he, he passed away actually shortly after my father and I remember kind of reading the news and actually it almost affected me more than my dad's passing away in a Mm. sense maybe I was more prepared to deal with my dad's passing but then when Michael passed away it was out the blue and yeah it really affected me so I think I'm holding his memory with me fairly strongly and there was a point just before he passed away that I was actually going to redo the training I had done with him because I didn't feel that when I did it first, I was going through again another breakup. This is <laughs> yeah, another breakup. And, and you're I, happily married now. <laughs> so yeah. That's good. 
and I wasn't really in the right place. So I thought I wanted to do uh, do something, do something yeah. with him again. I only met Michael once. I had dinner with him and Leslie Kamenoff and Bo Forbes, uh, and it was it? in Toronto. And I felt profoundly intellectually undermatched at that conversation. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those days. But it was also one of those days where I felt like I was in a very interesting, smart world. And just that one couple hour meal we had and then hanging out afterwards, he left it similar, like he left an impact. He was a You he came was, home and talked about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I yeah. don't you know, I meet I meet kind yeah. of everyone in the yoga world. And yeah. I've, I have friends in the yoga world with with names that are more commercially well-known than him. But yeah, and when he passed, I was teaching a 300-hour program. And it, it, it affected me a lot more than I thought it would. It really affected me pretty kind of deeply for a week, mm-hmm. which was a, yeah, was yeah. a lot for me. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're quite lucky that he's left so much. His writing, yeah. oh my gosh. so okay. many books, so many blogs, podcasts, Dharma talks. He's left a lot for us to uh, to still learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get a little touchy-feely for a moment, and we'll go back to Adam Hoke and just ask, what do you feel is your unique gift as a yoga teacher? Sure. I mean, th- this first of all, this is a difficult question for a boy from Florida to like figure out. <laughs> Same man, boy from Midwest. Yeah, talk about himself. But I think it has to do with like what I've been trying to work out my whole life since I was a teen, putting on musicals. Was how can I create a space for people to have some sort of emotional experience, some sort of revelation or transformation? Or it's like whatever they need in that moment, if it's a laugh or if it's just a communal space. And I tried a lot with theater. So that, mm. like, why did I do theater? Because I wanted to do that. And, of course, theater is tough, so that didn't work out for me. And then it became yoga. And I think what yoga has allowed me to do is create this opportunity to make space, hold space for people, and put together all the, like, all the talents that I have from all the other stuff that I've done. So all the writing comes into it because that's just where the clarity of language, some of the humor comes, all the years of going to yoga classes, all the discipline from that, all my Buddhist studies, all the compassion comes from that. And just like being able to put that together is I think when when it has started to make sense for me as a teacher, when I could bring all these parts of myself, including the boy from Davie, Florida and the way he speaks. I think that is what I don't know if it's my actual gift or skill, but it's my aspiration to be able to hold space for people using the tools of yoga where they can go through whatever they need to go through. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. I think that's what most people need. I think that's why, you know, life coaching is becoming really popular and health coaching is becoming really popular. And, you know, sometimes I become a little cynical when I see this, you know, plethora of now, instead of becoming a yoga teacher, I think the next thing is like to become a health coach. And then I remember, you know, we just need people. We just need each other. And sometimes we need someone to just listen to us or just be there with us. I think that's huge. And I think, I know it is a hard question, (laughs) but like I said, so like a little bit of a squishy question, but I do think that one of the amazing things about being a yoga teacher is that you really do have to show up as yourself. 
you just have to. You can't yes. like keep up a facade for very long. It's just not, I don't think it's possible. So I think that it's just really cool that every yoga teacher is different. And it's nice to know what your person, you know, what you bring to it. Yeah. I mean, coming from the theater background too, there were times where I performed myself, like tried to do that for a while and really heighten it. But that, you know, that just like wears out, you know, you burn out on that. Eventually you just got to bring yourself into the room and people will like it or they won't, but you got to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Adam Hustler, I'm putting you on the spot now. Okay. So special, special skills. I think for me, it's, it's a willingness to do as many repetitions as I can teaching. I'm not saying this is the only way to learn, of course, but given my background in in sports, I like to practice. And for me, teaching is something to be practiced. Hence me teaching, I think something like 7,000 classes now. I occasionally try and calculate, but I've taught a lot of yoga. And even now, I think I teach 17 classes a week plus workshops most weekends. And I think there is so much to be said for actually just the practice of teaching in that I see constantly new bodies. I will give a cue for a year, realize it's not working for people, then change that cue, change my analogies, change where I communicate, see how people respond to certain sequences. So I think that allows me to slightly, not slightly, it allows me to get an audience that resonate with me. I think mm-hmm. people, people appreciate that everything I do has reason. I've asked mm-hmm. why for everything I do. And then maybe that links to my law background. I I, I I need to know why I'm doing something. If I don't know, that's okay. But I want to try and know. And I want to try and give that knowledge to students in as accessible way as possible. And if I'm not giving knowledge to students, it's at least I want to give them a questioning mind. Or I want to give them context to why we might question something. I'm not a fan of going through the motions. I'm not a fan of yoga voice i'm not a fan of doing the things that i've always done just because i've been told to do that i'm a fan of kind of offering new experiences and constantly evolving myself and i do that through teaching a hell of a lot (laughs) Mm. yeah yeah i love that yeah big time self-observation and and self-study and self-discipline yeah and just watching students with an eagle eye and i don't i don't i don't use a yoga mat when i teach i don't have anything out i just walk the room and just constantly watch Maybe a bit creepy, but I just constantly watch what is happening when I say words. This is one of the little technical things I talk about so frequently at all level trainings, which is it's one thing to say something as a teacher, but you have to watch whether or not that thing has impact or not. And I remember just like one small example is I used to always give certain instructions to the tailbone, either to lift the tailbone or tuck the tailbone based on the situation. And that may have been a correct teaching, but every time I gave that, nothing happened. Like I would watch students on and be like, lift the tailbone, nothing would happen. Tuck the tailbone, nothing would happen. You know, there wouldn't even be like the faintest wrinkle in someone's clothing. And so I started to step back and say, okay, this thing that might be correct is not actually having any impact. So it, so it, there's no potency to it and it needs to be changed. And it's not that they are lacking in understanding. It's that I'm communicating in a way that just, it isn't making an impact. Mm-hmm. And so it's my responsibility to figure out a different way. 
And so instead, I would start to have people take their their own fingertips to their hip points and either lift them up or pull them down, right? So I would give the exact same instruction, but I would do it through a different technique, a different mechanism. And I've continued to do that. I'm willing to, to take whatever I think is true and accurate and throw it away if it doesn't actually have an impact and figure out a different way to communicate that. And I think that one of the places that comes from, and I, I reference you, Andrea, a lot, is the editorial process. If something just is making sense to me in my head, but it isn't making sense to someone outside of my head, then I need to figure out a different way to communicate that to an audience. So that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. I want to just talk a little bit about the 200-hour training specifically that the three of you are going to teach together. And now that I know more about you too, I have just so many different questions in my head, but I'll just start by saying there, there's just such a wide variance in 200-hour trainings, right? There's so many different approaches. Like I think about my 200-hour sure. training and it was really much more of an immersion than it was a how to teach yoga experience. I'll just explain a little more. It was, you know, one weekend we would do Ashtanga and the next three weeks we would do Iyengar and the next two weeks we would do Yin and then Anusar. So, so I left that training feeling like I should be able to know how to teach, but not really knowing how to teach. Now, at the same time, I really value that training because it taught me, it was just sort of an introduction to so many kinds of yoga. And I learned it, a lot about myself. It set you up actually so perfectly for what for you do. my job, it did, you know, yeah. For both the yoga journal side and this side, yeah. because you got such a good education in yoga. Yeah. And it just kept me really open and curious. Yeah. So knowing that, knowing, and I'm just looking at Jason here, yeah. knowing that there's just so many ways to go about a 200-hour training, how is yours structured and what do you want people to come away with? Well, okay. So let, let me start with just the kind of major concept. So before I taught my own 200-hour program many years ago, I think I think the first 200-hour program I taught was in 2010 when when I taught it my, oh, yeah. my, myself in its was, entirety. Jack was 15. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. how I know. Yeah. And Jack's now 25. Yeah. <laughs> so before I did my own program in its entirety where I taught all 200 hours, I was like so many people of a generation faculty on an ensemble teacher training program. And I saw some real upsides to that, but I saw some downsides to that. So one of the structures that's pretty common is whether it's an immersion, whether it's a six month, whether it's a 12 month or a 24 month, one of the most common scenarios is that you have a multitude of faculty and you have someone come in to teach anatomy and you have someone come in to teach asana technique and you have someone come in and teach philosophy and so on. And the upside of that is that you really have subject matter specialists. So the anatomy specialist comes in and then the philosophy teacher specialist comes in. So each individual chapter is treated really well. And the other upside to that is you get an exposure to different teachers with different styles and perspectives. The big downside to that is that process often lacks cohesion. Yeah. And it lacks a distinct voice with which the graduates can take into their future. 
And in programs like that, people often leave without any class structure. They leave without any class plan. And so you get good education and you get a good community and there are upsides to those things. I'm not going to be negative about them, but you have to be the personality that can put all of those disparate parts together into some cohesive sensibility. And I find that that is a profoundly difficult thing to do. So what I wanted to do with my 200-hour program was I wanted to bring in a few different people that had a ton of teaching experience and who where we all have the same, like I would say both Adams and I, I would say we fundamentally share the same sensibilities and the same way of processing our practice of yoga and our teaching of yoga. We have at our backbone a high degree of consistency and point of view, but we also have different enough personalities and takes that I feel like we offer a varied sense of personalities and takes and tones and stories, but with the same underlying sentiments of we want to teach yoga, but we also want to teach critical thinking skills. We want to, as Adam Hoke was talking about, we want to help people understand that yoga is a safe space and it's not a performance. It's not a contest and you get to go through whatever you get through. But then also like Adam Hustler was saying, and you got to know how to work hard. You got to be consistent. You have to be, you have to think about teaching yoga as a practice in and of itself. So that was the structure. That's That was where I wanted to have a faculty that had enough consistency and cohesiveness so students have a class plan and they have uh, teachers that are coming from a point of view that is non-dogmatic, but also enough different personalities and takes that the student also has some varying perspectives. Yeah, yeah. And then structure-wise... The way that it's going to work, so it's uh, three and a half weeks, four weeks, I don't know the exact period of time, but we had kind of gone through a bunch of different ways of thinking through it. But for the most part, I'm going to teach pretty much every day, and then there's going to be a day or two a week where each atom is also coming in and teaching. So it's not going to be like I teach five days and then Adam teaches two days and then I teach five days and then the other Adam teaches two days. We we want students to have, to feel the integration of the faculty's perspective throughout the entire process. Okay. So that feeling so of integration. Fluid, yeah. Fluid. And I guess, you know, I've already said it, but it's like, to me, the challenge of having the asana teacher teach for five days and then the anatomy specialist teach for five days and then the philosophy teacher teach for two days is ultimately all of these things, asana, philosophy, anatomy, like all of these things have to be integrated. They have to intersect. They're all part of the same thing. So we don't want them to be these like separate buckets. We want them to be ongoing, fully integrated buckets. And then same thing with our personalities is we're similar, but we're also different. So we want a pretty good integration of our different personalities from beginning to end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do either, Adam, do, do either of you guys want to add to that? It's, sure. it's weird to say Adam. To, to both of you. I've been Adam's, dealing with this for years. Adam's is, 
I've had like many different I've had many different nicknames okay. for them that go but, way back. Yeah. But let's be clear that I am the original. Yeah. <laughs> He's OG. So he so Adam Hoke's first nickname from me was old school Adam. Uh, oh, from Adam. you. Nick yeah, yeah. From me. Okay. Adam Hoke, old school Adam. Okay. Adam Hustler, new school Adam. Okay. That was the okay. that was the first set of nicknames. Okay. But what else I can say um is that Adam Hustler and I just got to teach an immersion this past fall together and it was exciting because like as you can already tell we are different people like you know he grew up hitting people and i was probably the person being hit Uh, (laughs) but what i think is a testament to the the style of the training that we both received from you is like the underlying structures of how we present a class the strategies we use the way we question the way we want to communicate that to people is the same. It is there. Having that in common allowed us to like gel immediately as teachers and for it to be cohesive as a presentation for people. So I'm really excited for that, you know, to come together with the three of us now. So it'll be sort of more teaching power, more excitement. Uh, but I think it's also good for people to know that when they come and learn from us that you, know, you get this structure and this technique and you can use it in so many different ways for so many different personalities and whatever your spiritual background is or how much you want to bring that in or not, it's like these structures allow you to be creative. Totally, totally. Yeah, the foundation allows you. So I actually kind of want to go into this a little bit because I think there's just so much transformation happening in the yoga world right now. Forever, there has been corruption in the yoga world, just like there is in any sort of organizational structure. Forever, there have been like, scandalized gurus. And it's sort of all like come to the fore so much more in the past few years, just come to people's consciousness in the past few years. But we used to talk about, you know, 15 years ago at Yoga Journal, we used to talk about Swami Radha and Amrit Desai and blah, 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 blah. And I think there's reasonable amounts of of question marks in people's head of like, what's wrong with this system? And how do we change it? And I just feel really proud, I have to say of you, Jason, in the sense that you've never been someone to present yoga in a dogmatic way. So yeah, so I want to sort of address this, which is, I actually think it's a safety issue. I think that one of the reasons that there have been so many scandals that you've talked about, and almost all, if not all, initiated by men, Mm -hmm. actually starts in a very subtle grooming way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And it's all in a context where you're more or less taught what to believe, not how to think. Right. You just said that much better than what I was trying to say. But so I think about this all the time, right? It's like when you're in a situation where you are – like group dynamics are complicated, man. You get sucked in, Mm. you know? Group dynamics are really powerful. It doesn't matter how strong you think you are. when you're in a group, there can be some. Well, your vulnerabilities can be. Yeah, that's that's the perfect way. Really yeah. knowing it, yeah. And I genuinely think, you know, because so much has come up about the topic of adjustments and yeah. so forth, right? Which, which I think it's way more subtle than that. I think it's more subtle and more pernicious than just adjustments. I think if you are not being taught critical thinking skills, if you in a group, especially with with look, teachers are charismatic, right? So if you have a charismatic teacher and that teacher is not helping you think for yourself, if that charismatic teacher is not giving you multiple ways 
to think through a situation, if that teacher is not providing you with the skill set to answer some of your own questions, then I'm not saying that that is abusive, but that can lead to a more potentially abusive scenario. Whereas when you as the teacher are constantly helping provide people with different ways to look at the same situation and different ways to understand here are all the variables involved. Now, I want to encourage you, like, Mm -hmm. here's my opinion. Right. You try it for yourself. Here's my opinion, but don't trust me. I had this actually was this perfect situation. There was a student in the module three class who just had like, I mean this really positively, like just a really big personality, right? Mm -hmm. And she was talking about that she's like, you know, when we did this workshop on Saturday, I didn't completely believe you. Like I I really didn't believe that this particular thing was going to actually work and be helpful. So I spent all day yesterday kind of experimenting with it and it worked. And I kind of took the moment. I said, don't believe me, you guys. Like your job here is not to just believe me. You should believe that what I have to say comes from a place of sincerity and education. But anything I say should go through your own process and filtering mechanism. You know, you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. But look how many times over the years I change my technical tune about something. Like, I don't believe me either. Like, I test what I, you know what I mean? Like, I test what I say over time too, because I know as yoga teachers, like sometimes in the moment we just say stuff, you know, and it might be true. It might not be true. But when you say things in public, you say it with conviction and then you start to believe it. And so you have to hold your own self accountable to developing your own critical thinking skills, let alone others. So this to me is where the current yoga state we're in to me, it isn't just about manual adjustments and male, female. It's although those are big issues. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm not undermining. But I understand. But what I'm saying yeah. is, it's even more subtle than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's even more subtle than that. So not dismissing that, but I'm saying it's even more complicated than just that. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I think what's quite special about the methods that we all seem to follow is there is no element of putting a teacher on a pedestal at all we're not at any point saying that as you say jason that we are right and this is the only way to practice yoga i think we often say no explore this today explore this way of doing this pose today this is why i believe it's beneficial this is how i believe it's beneficial work out in your body if you like it do it if you don't like it come back and i think we all try at least to present ourselves as human beings and yeah. fallible human beings. And actually, as Jason said, one year you will come, you will say one thing. Two years later, you will say, actually, I've worked as a spinal surgeon. That thing I said, ignore that. I've changed my mind. And I think students really appreciate that. The fact I, I so much. We are trying to be as real as possible. And I, th- I think one group of students, Jason, did make you a throne. Yes, they did. Well, it's, you know, it's <laughs> you because... You told me that. No, it's because... <laughs> I had just watched, before the training started, I had just watched... Game uh, of Thrones? No, no, no. Although that would be perfect. (laughs) It's not, no, not that Machiavellian. I had just watched Wild, Wild Country. Uh Is it Wild West or Wild... Wild, Wild Country. Wild, Wild Country. And so I was just, I was extremely disappointed in my lack of 
um, luxury gift. I was receiving no luck. Two weeks, not one luxury gift. And I had to pay for my own Uber, my own tube ticket. No, I, he had like 15 Rolls Royces that his students bought, bought him. I have not received one. Not Thank one. Thank God. Adam Hustler, I think you just hit the nail on the head, though, when you said, you know, we're just human beings. And oh, my gosh, it's just such a breath breath of fresh air to hear someone say that, because I think that that is the issue, right, is that traditionally, because people have looked up to their teachers as being more adept than them, which, you know, you do want your teacher to be further along the path than you are. Mm. But that doesn't mean even a a teacher who is quote unquote, like fully realized or whatever, they are still in their everyday life, a human being. And I think that that got forgotten somewhere and that that's a really important thing for any kind of teacher to go into the room knowing, because then you're sharing your discipline. You're not teaching from a place of ego. Mm. You're not teaching from like, I am the authority and I know what your body should be doing. And I know, you know, how you should be learning. It's like, okay, I am the authority at this subject matter and I want to share it with you so that you have these tools in your life and you can apply them to yourself and see how they work. Indeed. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel super heated about this. Yeah. Really <laughs> no, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think at our root, I think the three of us are pretty pragmatic. You know, we want this, we want the yoga practice to work for people. So it's the outcome that we're looking for. It's not the replication of my process. Right, 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 right. You know? Yeah. And that isn't to say that I don't have strong opinions or that they don't have strong opinions or egos, right? I mean, we have all those things, but I feel like, I don't feel like any of us need that affirmed by a student simply concurring with what we've said. Right. And I think the other thing is that students come in and I mean, I was this student at a certain point. I was really young when I started doing yoga and I was seeking and I wanted someone to have all the answers. So when I met a teacher who was in a certain position of authority or a certain level of being well-known, I projected onto them. Of course. You can solve things for me. You can help me. Oh my gosh, I love you, you know? (laughs) And so as a teacher, you have to be really cognizant of that too. My response to that is like, I'll put it this way. Like when I think about my jujitsu coaches, like I admire their skill and I admire their insight and they have something that I I want to have. Like I want to have that skill. I want to have that insight. But I have to know that that doesn't necessarily mean that they know more about how to live a life or how to be in a relationship or right, how to. Right. And I, and it does, I also can't assume that that means more people like them and they're more loved and they're living a better life. <laughs> right, right. It means they, they possess something that I admire and I appreciate, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and people, there's a lot of people in this world who have things skill sets and experiences that I admire, but I don't necessarily want someone else's life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll say this with a lot of love, like for Jason, is that when I looked at you as a teacher, I didn't think like, I want his emotional take on the world. I want <laughs> his stress resilience. Yeah. I looked at <laughs> you and thought like, you are an educator. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you are living this. Yeah. You do your work and I can learn from you. Yeah. But you know, I'm not, you know. 
Well, not- you did want his chihuahua, right? Oh, he didn't have the chihuahua at that time. So no. yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to just ask, and I'm not sure who wants to answer this first, but how do you think people know that they are ready for this training? Do you feel like people have to come to your training because they know they want to teach or are they just deepening their practices kind of enough of a motivation? I, I think for people, it'll be a bit of both. And I think that's fine. And like always on a 200 hour, there are seekers who are, are trying to figure something out. And I think that's mm-hmm. okay. But I think it's important that people have had like a relationship with yoga that has spanned some amount of time that isn't just all like, oh, I like it. It makes me feel good Mm -hmm. that it has accompanied them through life. And they sort of know that it has an effect on life. I think that's important that you like, it's not just this thing that you've done for a few weeks at the gym and you like, it's like you have, it's, it's a commitment to do this. So you, you want to have developed a relationship. I think people get really hung up when they're getting ready for 200 hours about their physical capacity. Yeah. So every time I do an info session for any sort of 200 hour, I always assure people they do not need to do perfect handstands Mm. or perfect splits. Because I think like if I myself was waiting to be able to do that before I did a teacher training, I'd still be waiting. So I think people need to let go of that. So they seem to have like a curiosity about, about, about their body and what it can do and, and sort of had some experience with postures. But also like they need to be able to make a commitment because it's, it's, it's like any other educational thing. You got to know that you're going to be devoting time. So you have to have your inner ballast of support and you have to have maybe some people around you who are going to support you. I don't want people to think like, oh, this is just a light commitment. I'll do this, you know, along with everything else I'm doing. It is like, I want people to treat it seriously because we are all very dedicated and serious about teaching a, a robust, rigorous program. So we want people who know that it is a commitment. Totally. I answered this question less than one week ago to someone for my 300-hour program who just literally asked me this question after class, mm-hmm. right? And what was interesting was, you know, the person was kind of asking, is the training more of a way to deepen my practice or to become a teacher? And I said, you know, I actually think the way that you're going to deepen your practice is to learn how to become a teacher, whether you decide to teach or not. So my thought on the topic is whether you're planning on teaching or whether you're just planning on intensifying your practice or whether or not you just have this little increment of your life and you, and you want to dedicate it to this subject study. As Adam said, it's, it is an intense thing, but regardless of what you intend your takeaway to be, you have to be prepared to spend a month thinking about being a teacher mm. because you want to think about it. So I have another student of mine who's graduated, who's in culinary school right now. And I actually don't know whether or not she posts every day, right? In stories. I actually don't know whether or not she wants to be a French chef, but she loves food. She's opening that corridor. So she has to take that mantle for that period of time as if she's going to be that chef. Mm. Whether or not that is her career path or not, I, I don't know. But having gone through school thinking like, no, this is, I'm not going to make any apology for myself. I'm not going to kind of dismiss and say, oh, I don't think I want to be a teacher. 
you know, completely own it, decide that you want to think about how to be that chef or how to be that teacher, what it is like to take the role and the seat of the teacher through this process. I actually think that's the best way that teacher trainings help you deepen your practice. Mm -hmm. You know, you just learn, you learn everything about becoming a teacher, sequencing, like everything that has to do with it. And you take away an immense amount of understanding of this discipline, whether or not you decide to apply that and share it with others or whether or not that is now working in your background understanding of how you just enjoy your own practice. Mm -hmm. I think as someone who did a 200-hour teacher training and didn't become a career teacher, I just still think there were so many benefits to having done it that I still feel in my yoga practice. Like I can't imagine not having done it. I think <laughs> I just think at a certain point, if you really love yoga, it's just a, I don't know. For the level of education, it's the only way that we, that we fill in much more of the story. Like, yeah, it, like if you're doing mostly drop in classes and maybe reading a little bit about yoga here and there and, you know, watching certain people on social listening media, to listening to yoga land, <laughs> you learn a lot. But again, the, you're reading a book, but you're reading in no particular order. Yeah. And you don't get the whole context. Yeah. You don't get the context. You don't get the organization. You don't get the kind of, uh, you don't get the layers uh, in an organizational way that makes a larger, deeper impression. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Hustler, did you have something you wanted to add? All, all I would add to that is I would say before someone embarks on a training, they should have kind of witnessed how their body and mind experiences a medium-term yoga practice. They'll have done yoga for one or two years, perhaps, and actually just watch what's happened to them. And I don't think someone needs to be, have an advanced asana practice to be an amazing yoga teacher. But I do think they need to have practiced yoga for an amount of time. And I think if someone comes onto training, as I think a lot of people do nowadays, nowadays, as yoga teaching seems cool, I think a lot of people are coming into it for a career change. And I think that's not necessarily the right way to come into it. I think coming into a teacher training with an open mind, looking to enhance knowledge, maybe skill, to maybe explore the idea of actually teaching, but not with any specific aim. I think it's a, a chance to really learn about yourself through some skill-based learning rather than kind of an end in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Can't wait to see you this summer. And we I are going to have the fun. I'll see yeah. you in March. <laughs> You're going to have to decide a nickname for us by then. New nickname. Well, Adam Hope just messed it up because the most recent one was Adam Instagram and Adam Nogram. Actually, at our joint training that uh, Adam and I ran together, there was <laughs> I was Big Adam. I did not like that. No, that's horrible. I think we. I'm happy that's that. horrible. <laughs> We're not emasculating. He's not little Adam. You know, and by the way, you're not that much. Well, how how you're not that much bigger. Oh boy, I think. Come on, <laughs> wrap this up now, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna think. We'll about figure it. out a new one. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna coming up with headlines. So we'll we'll work on our we'll work on our, our nicknames, and we'll get one for Jason too. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Sure. All right, guys. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you would like a video 
with a sample sequence from Jason's 200 hour teacher training manual. You can go to jasonyoga.com slash 200 hour, give us your email address and we'll send you the video. I will also put the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 181. And I'll include links to the whole detailed info 200 hour training page if you'd like to check that out. Okay, until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.